Okay, we, um, we are in the week three of a series uh, that we've been doing um, called Multiply. Uh, and to help us do this, we've been looking at the life of this Old Testament character, uh, Abraham. And um, as we've observed over the past few weeks, um, the path that Abraham walked was, was a path of significance and multiplication. And, and, and I really believe that um, that's, that's the path that you and I are invited into too. That this story that began with this character Abraham is a story that still continues on and that you and I uh, get to enter into that story. You know, this theme of multiplication is really at the heart of what we believe God is saying to us as a church at the moment, that as we continue to grow and and develop, um, that we want to grow and develop not just by addition, but by multiplication. Uh, that, we, that we dare to say to God, will you give us more? And, and in the process of asking him to do more, we're saying, would you come and multiply what you've done to date? That all that you've done in the last few years, Lord, would you come and multiply it? That's, that's what we're, 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 we're longing for. And, and as we do that, we've been exploring what characterizes people who live lives of multiplication. And um, what does it mean for us to live in that reality? What does it mean to live in that reality of multiplication? And as we've been saying, that when God's hand is in something, multiplication becomes normal. It becomes a normal part of who we are. So what does it mean for us to live in that reality? And so as we looked a few weeks ago, we've been looking at this idea that we're called to multiply and follow. In Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham and he says to him, I want you to leave everything. I want you to leave your security. I want you to leave your comfort and your safety. And I want you to go to a place that I haven't shown you yet. And so there's this sense of of obedience to follow no matter what. And you might remember this quote from John Calvin who who summarizes Abraham's call. And he says this, to summarize it is this, just close your eyes and take my hand. That as we step out, as we follow God, it's just a case of closing our eyes and taking his hand, trusting him. And, then, and that kind of went on to, the, to what we did last week, where we talked about multiply and trust, and how God is committed uh, to growing this, this, what we call a faith muscle. Um, that people who lean into multiplication are the kind of people who are learning to live and walk by faith. And so today, I've got a, quite a simple message, and um, I've only got two points to make. I don't know if that means we go home early or what, but um, I want to think about what it means to be people who multiply through their priorities that they make, how we prioritize things uh, and, and how we, we see things as important. And so, and so we're going to look at um, the fact that Abraham... Was, was led into a situation where he had to choose the most important thing. And, and actually, that became foundational to him. And, and, and what we see here is he didn't have to choose between a bad thing and a good thing. But actually, um, he was presented with a couple of choices. And actually, he made a choice... Um, 
that, of what should come first. He made a choice to say, this is my first priority. And, um, and, and this subtle choice that he makes um, has a dramatic impact on the, the way the rest of his life turned out. That Actually, the choice that he makes here is, is what shapes the rest of his story. Now, just about every book you could read on leadership or, or anything like that says that establishing priorities is probably the, the essential ingredient in, in being a successful leader or being a, a successful person. You know, knowing what in the long list of things should come first is an important skill. Knowing the difference between what's mission critical and, and um, what's just nice but not essential is, is vital. It's vital to the health of an organisation, but it's also vital uh, to a person uh, wanting to live a life full of meaning and purpose. And so as we pick up in Genesis 13, um, I, I, just, I just want to remind you of the context. You know, um, Abraham uh, uh, was, was in a land where God led him, and there was a famine. And so he ends up in Egypt. And you remember, he goes to Egypt... And because he fears for his life, he, he lies and says that his wife is his sister. And what he essentially does is he gives his wife away um, to, to Pharaoh. And, um, and Pharaoh, as a result, is cursed. And he, 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 kind of, he kind of figures out what Abraham's done. And so he gives him his wife back and says, get out of town. I want you gone, okay? I want you out of here. And that's where we pick up in in chapter 13 and and verse 1. And so it says this, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place, until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, uh, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them whilst they were staying together. For their possessions were so great, they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abraham's herds and lots. The Canaanites and Perizzites uh, were also living in the land at the same time. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have quarrelling between you and me, or between your herds and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, what Abraham is suggesting here, um, and is suggesting to Lot, who who is his nephew, um, is kind of a little bit unexpected. Because, you know, when households and and families fell apart in in these times... Uh, when, when tensions arose, it meant one or two things might happen. Firstly, they might decide to go to war. 
um, they might decide to have a good old fight. Okay, that's, that's one thing they, they could have done in, in this circumstance. But the other thing, and probably rightfully, rightfully so, Abraham could have just said to Lot, get lost. <laughs> Go somewhere else. This is mine. This isn't yours. You need, you need, to, you need to get out of here. And, and, and the reality is, is that Abraham is clearly the man in charge. He's clearly the head of the party. He's, he's the older one. He's the richer one. And he's the one who's received the promise from God uh, about, about this being the promised land. And in many ways, Lot is, is kind of like the tagalong. You know, he's the, he's, he's the kind of the, the, the awkward nephew who comes to a party and you, no one knows what to do with him. And, and, and so Lot is there. He's tagging along. But Abraham doesn't do what is expected. And not only does he avoid conflict, he doesn't go to war, but he also gives the lesser man the better choice. It says in, it says in verse 10, it says, Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zah uh, was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, uh, whilst Lot lived among the cities of the plains and pitched his tent in Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and, and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And then it says in verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west, All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I have given it to you. So what we see in this kind of peculiar passage um, is the contrast of really two different sets of priorities, two different ways of looking at the world. You know, Lot and Abraham are intelligent guys. Uh, They both know how to make smart decisions. But from our vantage point, because we we get to see the whole story, we see that Abraham's choices led to increased prosperity and wealth and blessing, and multiplication. And we see Lot's choice ultimately led to destruction. As we, as we read the whole story, we see Abraham is going to rescue Lot, not just once, but twice. He's going to rescue him in, in chapter 14, and then again in chapter 18. And on the second, second occasion, it's just moments before God destroys Sodom and the whole Jordan Valley. And so as we think about these two men, Abraham and Lot, we can see that each of them chose their own priorities. Um, They they, they chose their own priorities, and and we can see from our vantage point the impact that it had on their lives. And so that's what I want to think about this morning. And so the first thing is, is that Lot, we see that Lot prioritized the riches and the good things he could see. When Lot looks at his options, he makes the choice based on one factor. 
If I go in that direction, I'm going to be wealthy. If I go in that direction, I'm going to have uh, so much more. If I go in that direction, it's far more attractive. It's, it's something that, that's really pleasing to the eye. And see, from, the, from, from a perspective of financial security, from, from a perspective of personal prosperity and comfort, his decision looks like a good choice. He chooses uh, the land that looks blessed from God. Yet in the process of making this choice, Lot kind of gives total disregard to God. You know, he is someone who knew God. He's part of Abraham's household. He, he would have been a worshipper of, of God. And yet, there's no prayer on his behalf that says, okay, God, is this the right decision? You know, he didn't, he didn't stop and think, okay, God, do you want me to take the left or the right? He doesn't do that. Instead, he makes his home next to Sodom, which is a notorious place for wickedness. And, and in many ways, Lot squanders everything simply because Sodom is a place where, where the money's at. It's where the party is. It's where the fun is. It's, it's, it's the thing that, that he can see, and it's attractive. And so we see that the choices that Lot makes, the, the priority he makes, it leads, to, it leads to destruction. In chapter 13, he, he moves next door to Sodom. In chapter 14, he's no longer next door to Sodom, but he's actually in Sodom. In, in, in chapter 19, not only is Lot in Sodom, but he's the most respected man in Sodom. And eventually, when God calls him out, his wife is so in love with the material prosperity. She so loves the lifestyle that they've got that, that she, she looks back. And we all know the story. She turns into a pillar of salt. Now, here's the thing. This isn't a moral tale to say you shouldn't live in certain places. You know, you shouldn't live where sinners are, heaven forbid. It, that isn't what this is saying. Because if, if we took that line, then none of us could live anywhere, could we? But that isn't what this is about. You see, the moral of this story is that Lot prioritised what looked like personal gain over his relationship with God. He made a different priority choice. And you see, the harsh reality is... Often you and I are guilty of doing exactly the same thing. This morning's talk isn't going to be nice and fluffy, okay? I just want to give you that warning up front. But you know, as a, as a pastor, um, and this mainly applies to people in the first service, as a, as a pastor, I, I get to see different people's lives. And, um, and sometimes you bump into people. Sometimes you bump into people who've got terrible jobs. And the job's terrible for them. It's terrible for their, their family. Uh, it's, it, it leaves them with no time. No time for their spouse. No time for their kids. No time to serve God. Or, 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 or any of their things. And they, and they have this lifestyle where they're stressed out. They're tired. Overworked. 
But this terrible job also pays for a lifestyle that they've chosen. And so what happens is we, we end up having to compromise our priorities, don't we? We, we end up thinking, oh, I've, I've, I've suddenly created a lifestyle for myself and I hate the job I'm in, but it pays, it pays to do all the things that I need to do. And so sometimes you discover people like that and yeah, they do get up early and they do come to a 9.30 service. <laughs> I also know parents. I also know parents who have got kids and and, 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 and sometimes it's easy, isn't it, to um, uh, not involve our kids in church because there's far too many commitments. There's the commitment of football or dance or this other activity or this other weekend thing. And, and please hear me in this. I get this. I'm the father of three children, and I know what it's like to juggle and try and get the balance right and all of that. But I just want to ask parents in the room a question, a rhetorical question. You don't have to, you don't have to shout back. What do you think, and there's been lots of studies into this, but what do you think, and I just want you to think on this, what do you think is the thing that contributes to your offspring growing to be adults who follow Jesus? Just have a ponder in your mind what that might be. You see, one of the contributing factors in one one study that was carried out is that children who carry on their religious affiliation uh, when they become adults do so because they had parents who had a living and active faith. Now, that's not the only reason. You know, there's this little thing of the work of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of God and all of that. But one of the factors that means our kids have a living and active faith in their adult life is that they have parents who had a living and active faith. One study by the research group Theos um, says this. He says, the role and responsibility of the family is is central in faith transmission. In other words, family is a primary unit in transferring what we believe to the next generation. Enduring adolescent and adult believers are largely uh, the product of a caring, supportive, stable home where faith is seen, heard, and experienced. Modeling is key. Parents need to be and do what they want their children to become. And so here's the thing, and we can test this out if you like, but according to this study, um, if our kids don't see us as parents prioritising what we say we believe, the chances of them going on to be men and women who know and love Jesus and have an active faith is drastically reduced. Now, we could be agnostic about that, couldn't we? And we could say, I just want them to discover it for themselves and relinquish all responsibility. That's what we could, we, we could do. And so families that prioritise faith 
and commitment. Families that um, see the importance of gathering together in environments like this one and worshipping the Lord together. Families that together choose to roll up their sleeves and, and serve others and give themselves to others actually kind of build the bedrock for a next generation. And you know, what I'm saying might make, tick you off a little bit, okay? And that's okay, because the Bible says you've got to forgive me, okay? But here's the thing, and I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm saying this as a dad. I'm saying this as a parent to parents. You know, when we look at the 101 good things that our kids could do, you know, there's so many things that they can engage with. And then if we filter that and put that through this idea that the things that we prioritise, the things that we see as mission critical are the things that will go on to shape who they are and who they follow in the future. How might that affect the choices we make or the priorities that we, we hold? Well, let me put it in a slightly stronger way. Which of all the other options have eternal significance? And so you need to forgive me for being so blunt. But you see, Lot prioritised what he saw as good in the moment. Lot prioritised what, what seemed like a good idea for now, with total disregard for what the future might hold. Abraham, by contrast, prioritises God's kingdom. You see, Abraham's question wasn't, where's the best land? But it was, God, where do you want me to go? And so when he, when he reached that point in verse 3, he went back to the place where God's presence was, where the altar was built, and he said, God, what do you want? You see, that place, Bethel, was the place where he'd previously heard God's voice. And the first thing he does is he gets on his knees and says, okay, God, what's next for this next chapter? What's the next priority? What's the next choice you need me to make? And so as a result, Abraham prioritised what he believed to be God's will. Some of you will be familiar uh, with this guy, Eric Liddell. He was um, a British athlete in the 1924 Olympic Games. And he's famous because there was a story of his life called Chariots of Fire. Has anybody seen that film, Chariots of Fire? And um, he became famous because he refused to engage in the qualifying rounds for the 100 metres. It was his event. You know, he was the favourite to win it. But he refused to go enter into the qualifiers because it was taking place on a Sunday. And for him, Sunday was Sabbath. It was a day to rest and worship God. And, you know, we might look at Eric Liddell's story and think, 
that's just a little bit religious. You know, surely you could just swap the day. You know, work on Sunday and have Monday off. You know, we, we need you to win gold here, Eric. You know, you just, don't, don't you understand? But his conviction was so strong that it forced him to withdraw from the event. The, the event that he had chance to win gold at. In other words, his priority to do God's will in this instance had become greater than his priority to win Olympic gold. The very thing he'd been training for up to that point. Now that's a great story, isn't it? And it'd be a great story if that's where the story ends, but it's not. Because he withdrew from the 100 metres, he had to go and compete in the 200 metres and the 400 metres. In the 200 metres, he won bronze. And in the, in the 400 metres, he won gold and set a new world record. It's interesting to see that after Lot left Abraham, God turns to, God turns to him and says, look around you, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever, ever. You see, when we choose to prioritise well, we can trust God will multiply the outcome. When we make the right choices, when we invite God into the situation, God will multiply the outcome. So maybe Eric Little could have won gold, in the 100 metres. And yet when he chose to prioritise his relationship with God, the outcome was already dealt with. Jesus puts it similarly in Matthew 6, 33. He says, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you as well. See, living lives that multiply means learning to prioritise well. Learning to have the right priorities. And I guess the question is, how do we do that? How do we learn to have the right priorities? Because there's so much against us. I've picked on parents this morning, picking on myself, but there's loads of us we could pick on. So many of us have got different things that bombard us, that cause us to think, how do I make the right choice? So I think we could ask ourselves a couple of questions. And the first one is this, what comes first in our decision making? On the long list of good things to do, what comes first? Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom. And then he says, all of these things will be given. You know, last time I looked for all things, it meant all things. Like money and possessions and, you know, the outcomes to certain situations. See, when we put him first, he has the ability to supply the rest. When we prioritise his kingdom, when we prioritise his mission in our lives, he says, I will take care of the rest. I'll give you all that you need. 
Now, we often, we often define priorities as, as what we give our time, our energy, and our money to. Someone once said that you know, if you want to know what your priorities are, then, then take a look at your diary and take a look at your bank statements. They'll reveal what's important to you. And so does God get the first and best of who I am? That's the second question that we can ask. You might have noticed in verse 10, Lot describes the the Jordan Valley as the garden of the Lord. And there's a kind of a a, a very descriptive thing going on there. Um, uh, And I think what happens is is Lot sees the spiritual dimension of, of, of what's happening. And, and he's, he's kind of saying, like, this, this is like paradise. When I look at the Jordan Valley and I see Sodom and, the, and, and all that's before me, it's, it's, it's like paradise. And so he puts that first. He, he makes that decision. He says, I'm going there. You see, for, God, for Abraham, God's presence was paradise. And that's what he put first. See, what we give our first and best to shows what we trust the most. This is often evident with the way that we use our resources, our money, the, the, the way we handle uh, our income. See, if the first thing we do when we're paid is, is save our money, you know, then, then we, we say the first thing is, is saving. Uh, in, in other words, it might be that we're putting our trust in money. Now, I'm not saying don't save, okay? Don't hear me say don't save. Don't go and tell anybody the pastor said don't save, okay? Or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is if that's the first thing we do, if that's the first thing we rush to do when we get paid, then I would say that that's, that's what we're putting our, our trust in. But for Abraham, it was about giving to God first. <laughs> Being generous with what was what was before him. You know, Abraham didn't even hold back the land, did he? He, he gave Lot the choice. He said, you take what you want because I'm trusting God will provide for me. Now, sometimes we, when, it took, when it comes to talking about money in church, it gets all uncomfortable and we, we get a bit red-faced and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of get hung up on figures, don't we? We get hung up on percentages, But I actually think first and best isn't about a percentage. It's about a priority. It's not about how much. We don't need to get hung up on percentages. You know, we can give the right amount, tick, and still not trust God. Yeah? We can give our 10% and still not trust God in the process. See, God wants us to give our time, our energy, and our resources, and he wants it just to have first place. He wants it to be first place and then trust him for the rest. Trust him for what's to come. You know, I'm really conscious there's there's so much more I could say this morning, and I've had to cut chunks out. If you saw my notes, there's loads of lines through my notes. But I just want to finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. And it says this, put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. 
put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. And you know, isn't that what happened to Lot? He saw the Jordan Valley, he, he saw the goodness before him, and, and he made that his priority. And it was the wrong priority. And so the challenge this morning is, how do, we, how do we learn to put first things first? How do we learn to prioritize? How do we learn to build the right priorities into our lives? It's sometimes hard, isn't it? Because we're bombarded with options. We're bombarded with this option or that option or this thing or that thing. How do we, in a long list of good things to do, say, this one is mission critical? This one is my top priority. How do we, how do we make the kingdom of God the main priority in our lives? And how do we let go? How do we let go of all the other stuff? And so I think this morning, as we respond, it's not so much we need some God to impart something, other than we need God's wisdom. We need God to show us what steps we need to take. What steps we need to take to say, you know what, I need to reorder the priorities in my life. God, will you help me? 